got a lot to try to cover here this morning, so let's see if we can if we can get through it. Um, as we continue going on through uh, <coughs> the modern age, we're we're talking about stuff going on during the, the time of the greatest generation, the time of World War II, where people pulled together to to do immense things as a country. Um, at a time when everything seemed to be falling apart again. I mean, in 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 that generation's memory, they've had a world war, and people thought, oh, the, what's the term? The war to... Yeah, there's, there's no way anybody's going to be dumb enough to go to war again, right? We're not going to do that. No way after World War II you do that. And then in 1941, World War II began, correct? No, 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 no. 1939, World War II began. Now, I say that because it's important. Remember the whole invasion of Poland thing we talked about the other week? When Hitler invaded Poland, uh, in 1939, England and France declared war on Germany to defend their mutual ally, Poland, right? That's 1939. World War II started in 1939. Why did we tend to think of it as World War II starting in 1941? That's when we got it. Because that's when we got it. Everybody else is already at it for two years. We weren't. We said, we're going to sit this one out. Because... We just don't see a reason why we need to be part of that war. We did a war with you guys once. We were in World War I for two years. Everybody else goes, we had like five, six years ago. Two years. Not doing that again. That's a European problem. Like Royce Burles writes whole books about how that's a European problem. We're just going to cut ourselves off from all that. So 1940, a year before we get into it, Germany invades France, right? Which, of course, they can't. They can't invade France because France isn't stupid. They've been through a world war, and they're not going to let that happen again, right? And so, that's right. The French are like, no, we, we remember they did nasty things to our countryside, so we're going to build a wall. The, the minister of war named Maginot says, we're going to build these fortifications between France and Germany. Impregnable. There's no way that the German war machine is going to get through that wall. Bunch of little forts. And he's right. They worked amazing. They're phenomenal. There's no way you're going to easily get through that. And since Belgium and the Netherlands and Switzerland are all neutral, you can't, unless he's going to march through Italy, which is his ally, you can't get to France, right? Impregnable. Which is why the people worked, the guys who were serving on the Maginot Line wore these shoulder patches saying, they shall not pass. Remember we talked about that last week from Verdun? They're like, yeah, no, Germans can't get through. Yay! Problem solved, right? Why? Because he'll take through the Netherlands. He can't, they're neutral. Yeah, because Hitler being Hitler didn't care. It's like, I don't care. Yeah, I have treaties with them. Yes, they're neutral, but I want to work. I want to walk through them. So, I mean, it's not like the Belgian army is going to stop us. The great army of the Netherlands is going to is going to stop the Nazi war machine. There was a time. There was a time when Belgium was potent in the 19th century. There was a time when the Netherlands were potent back in the 18th century. Not right now. So Hitler just ignored all of that. He said, yeah, I'll just march straight through them. Go into France. Bypass the Maginot Line completely. Spent, the French spent nine years and three 
million francs building a defense that they never even used because they didn't understand their enemy. So let me ask you, I mean, it's not a direct correlation to the church, but there kind of is a direct application for the church. An amazing number of Christians, an amazing number of churches, spend an awful lot of time doing things that accomplish nothing because you don't understand the people you're trying to reach out to or you don't understand the, the, the mindsets you're trying to, to take a stance against. Can you give me an example of any time where we say, oh, here, this will work, this will be effective, and we say, do, do you even understand what you're trying to stand against? That'd be like trying to build a wall that costs billions of dollars, but the enemy that we really are fighting just converts people over the internet from the insider country. Well, I was thinking more church than less nation, but the, 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 well, but even that, even that was a good example. It's like, um, what does the church do that is maybe equivalent to that? Other structures that we do, we're saying, well, this worked 50 years ago. But it's a lot easier to hand out tracts, isn't it? It's a lot easier to just throw information at people than to interact with people because today's modern generation, they're not all that into like interactive discussion on things, right? They are from the like Facebook. I mean, they, they, they still like to do it from a, a comfortable distance, but they're interactive with things. The idea of saying, can we do this from a distance like that? You go, no, there's some parts of ministry you can, but the kind that you're talking about, the outreach part, no, you really can't. Paris fell within a month of the invasion. A month after Germany decided they're going to invade, Paris is down, even though they built the National Line. All right, Germany immediately says, well, we've literally crossed the line. You know, so it's one thing when we go, oh, there's German-speaking people over here. Oh, there's German people. France. I mean, once you do that, once you invade neutral territory, once they're like, okay, now's the time. They go up, they invade everything north of them. They invade everything south of them. Within a little over a year of beginning World War II, without really having much in the way of a battle anywhere, Germany has tripled in size. It's looking like this, right? And there's no standing army in Europe that is really causing any problems because they have this still sort of this treaty going on with Russia that neither one of them quite wants to, to throw it against the wall yet. In fact, if we start to include the other members of the Axis, if you include people like Italy and things in here, this is what Europe looks like at this point in history. Without there ever being major battles really yet. This is all that's left of France, stuff over here. England is sitting here going, what? Yeah. Why did the neutrality of Switzerland work but not Belgium? Anybody want to make a guess? I, there's a couple of different arguments, but there's one really clear argument. Yeah. Well, okay, that's part of why it's always been um, fairly neutral. It's, it's hard to invade. There's a, it's just mountains all over the place. There's one more mercenary reason. Well, they are pretty tough. They're the, the toughest neutral people you ever want to mess with. Well, it was the only way to get to France? That is part of it. Yeah, that's where all the Nazis have their money. This is where everybody in Europe was banking out of Switzerland. 
because they're the tough neutral people. Switzerland is the really, really tough army who absolutely categorically remains neutral, and everybody, everybody puts their money there. That is the last place, literally, you want to invade. Maybe you do want to invade it someday, but up until you, it's like, until you absolutely have to, just let Switzerland be Switzerland and do what Switzerland does well. Guard the Pope, keep your money, and make clocks. And chocolate. Okay. It's no wonder that Hitler is boasting to his people. It's our will that this state shall endure for a thousand years. We're happy to know that the future is ours entirely. Year and a half, this is Europe. Seems to be working pretty well. England, the only thing, the only place left, really, that's doing anything is England. They're the only place holding out. Because if you remember from your history, the Spanish, after the Spanish Civil War, were left with a more or less fascist government. It's arguable whether it's fascist or not, but for the sake of argument, let's call it fascist-like. And think about how close England had come to actually being a fascist government as well, that we talked about last week, without almost firing a shot. This is the way Europe would have looked. So you can understand why Neville's like, I'm done. Neville Chamberlain steps out. He's like, I... I'm out of my depth. I'm not going to do this. I keep trying to deal with Hitler as if he's a world leader like I am, or like the world leaders in any place else are. You make a treaty. You say, I, I won't shoot you if you won't shoot me. We won't poke those guys with a stick. And he says, no problem. He goes and he pokes him with a stick and looks at me and goes, you don't want a world war, do you? Well, I guess not. Okay, so let's make a new treaty. And you're not going to poke those guys with a stick? Absolutely not. I'm done. Okay, great. Wait, you poked him with a stick? Yes, I did. You don't want a world war, do you? And by the time I finally say, I guess I want a world war, you own Europe? I don't know what to do with this guy. I'm way out of my depth. So, on the eve of the German invasion of France, England is aware that they're invading France. They're like, We're, this is happening. He steps down. He's like, I'm not going to be prime minister. Which... Depending on how you feel about Neville Chamberlain is either a really stinky thing to do or a really awesome thing to do. Because if, if England says, basically, we're going to be at war, we're going to be at war with Germany tomorrow, how would you feel, if, 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 in general, how would you feel if, if we knew that tomorrow we're going to be at war and the president goes, okay, I'm done, and leaves? Chamberlain doesn't know anything about war at all, um, maybe that would be good for us if he got out of the way and let somebody step up who... Good argument. And that's... Yeah, Randy. Um, also, maybe he just felt totally responsible for what happened. Felt totally responsible. So responsible and says, I'm So, um, on some level, and, and, and the way he did it was very classy, the way he expressed himself, there are multiple people that said, you came out as a looking golden. I mean, you, 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 you tried your level best. You, you remained a gentleman through the whole thing. I mean, on some levels, people were like, no, we like you, Neville. You're such a good guy. And they felt really bad that, I'm gone. It's, we're at war. It's like, wait, who did what? And yet, kind of what you guys are getting at, he said, I can't do this. You need a wartime conciliary, right? You, I can't be the one who does this. And so he named as a successor the first Lord of the Admiralty. He's like, most people don't name their own successor. I'm really going to suggest you guys take this guy. Because he's the first Lord of the Admiralty. He actually knows war. And who's that? 
Do remember who the first Lord of the Admiralty is? That would be Winston Churchill, right? Because when you think of Winston Churchill, you think Navy. Because you should. He's the one that converted into a modern Navy and everything. But he's already something of a war hero. For picking him, that sends a message to the British people. Because he'd served with, with distinction in India. He'd served in the Boer War. He'd risen to become president of the, of the Board of Trade, the Home Secretary, first Lord of the Admiralty. And then threw that all away. In World War I, he's like, yep, I'm resigning all that so I can go serve in the field. I'm going to go command a, an infantry brigade. A battalion, actually. So basically, he was the British version of Teddy Roosevelt, right? Even down to, I, I'm, the, I'm the scholarly soldier guy. I, I have held every position you can imagine, and I've written a bunch of scholarly texts, and I go out in the field and shoot people. He's going, well... <laughs> So Neville Chamberlain basically says, I'm stepping down. May I suggest Teddy Roosevelt? To which Britain went, oh. <laughs> then he came back after World War I. He was Minister of Munitions. He was Secretary of State for War, Secretary of State for Air, First Lord of the Admiralty. It's like, so wait, you were in the Army, you oversee the Air Force, and now you oversee the Navy. Yes. Maybe you wouldn't be a bad, you know, minister for us to go into World War II with. So when Chamberlain says go with Churchill, he's saying this is going to get ugly. You really need somebody who is really good at this. May I strongly advise you to take him. And he was ruthless. He was absolutely committed. There's never been a leader more committed to actually winning a war than Churchill was. He's like I'm going to give like the most amazing motivational speeches. I'm going to be making secret deals with everybody. I would Never play diplomacy against Churchill. It's like, no. He, he's like the, for lack of a better term, the good guy version of Hitler. You know, where Hitler is, is, is making secret deals and lying and all that kind of stuff. Churchill's like, I can do this real politic thing too. I'm not a, I don't think like a gentleman. I don't think like some guy sitting in an armchair puffing a pipe. I think of some guy marching down the street with a snarly attitude, you know, with a cigar. I'm intense. Um, and so... He starves the civilians of India, takes food away from the citizens of India to feed his own troops. It's like, if we lose India, fine. If we lose the Indians, I'm fine with that as long as we don't lose India. So he even lauded anti-Semitism. He's like, yeah, the Jews are, have this worldwide conspiracy. They're, they have this envious malevolence. No, we need to stop the Jews. The Jews are part of the problem. Contemplated interning the Jews in, in, in England. Whatever works. He's like, I'm going to win the war. In fact, he gave this famous speech that probably most of you have heard. 1940, he addresses the House of Commons, who are terrified, saying, wait, I just don't know what's going to happen. He says, there has never been, I suppose, in all the world, in all history of war, such an opportunity for our youth. You realize this is an opportunity. You guys are scared. No, no. Think of it the wrong way. The Knights of the Round Table, the Crusaders... They all fall back into the past, not only distant, but prosaic. Oh, these men, these young men, going forth every morn to guard their native land and all that we stand for, holding in their hands these instruments of colossal and shattering power, of whom it may be said that every morn brought forth a noble chance and every chance brought forth a noble knight. Citing Tennyson, because why not? I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, 
we shall prove ourselves once again able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary, for years, if necessary, alone. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. So when he started talking to them, they were terrified. When he stopped talking to them, they like gave him a standing ovation. That's the kind of guy that they said, this, this is what we need to get through this. Yes? What advantage was it to the Because a lot of people in England were. Again, they came very, very close to being a fascist state under Mosley, where he was speaking against Jews and things. <clears throat> My point is that he's willing to do anything, speak against anything, speak for anything to actually win. Um, I had a great deal of respect for Churchill. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying the guy is not perfect, and some of the stuff he's willing to do, he's willing to cross a number of lines. So whether you see him as ruthless, whether you see him as committed, or you see him as a rotten human being in service for the right cause, however you want to view that, you can make an argument, and as, I, as I, I, I think historically you should, you can make an argument that the reason that Hitler didn't just take over Europe was because England stuck in his craw. And the reason England didn't crumple was because of Churchill. So maybe he's like Samson, you know, God's blunt instrument stuck in the right place at the right time to do the right things, but you don't necessarily want to be his buddy. Uh. 1941, America is sort of neutral. We're neutral-ish. We're not going to be involved, but we are fine with like embargoing Japan. We're smuggling supplies over to China. We're telling Japan we're not going to send them stuff and that they need to stop what they're doing. And then we did the same over in Europe. We're going to censure Germany and we're going to send stuff to England and to free France, etc. FDR started calling America the, the uh, arsenal of democracy. We're going to build all the planes, all the warships, all the munitions and do this, what they call a lend-lease program, to send them over to England and to free France and to even ultimately to the Soviet Union saying, anything you guys need, that's what we're going to help. Now, we're not involved in the war, mind you. We're just supplying the war. We even unofficially allowed 100 volunteers from the Army and Navy Air Corps to travel to Asia to form the first American volunteer corps uh, group of the Chinese Air Force. A group called the, anybody know? The Flying Tigers, that's right. Famous group of airmen over there in China that are American-trained airmen flying American planes wearing American uniforms, but they're not Americans. They're Chinese for the duration. One of whom was my Uncle Shelley, who served in Shanghai. So that was a little bit later on, though. But anyway, point is, we say, no, we're going to embargo you, Japan. We're not going to actually be involved, but we're going to keep embargoing you until you sign a non-aggression pact with all of your neighbors and you just stop it. You can even keep what you got, mostly. you got to leave China. You can keep the, some of the other stuff you stole and then just stop there. Everything's cool. No harm, no foul. Some of the other places go, no, a little foul. No harm, no foul. Stop. 
Japan says, actually, no. How about no? We're on a roll. So we're going to just, we're going to take America out. America is starting to cause a problem with us. They don't want war. Americans have made it clear for the last two years they don't want war. Everybody else is at war. America is watching even some of their holdings get pressured over here, and they don't want war. So if America doesn't really want war, how do we get them to make a decision to just let us do this? So they plan to invade all the U.S. holdings in the South Pacific, the Philippines, all that kind of stuff. But to do that only after they take out the, the U.S. Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor. And to do that only after they formally declare war. But immediately after. So just declare war, take out your fleet, and take all of your stuff. Think about that. What would that do to a nation that really doesn't want to go to war again? What does that do? Well, it, it, again, playing diplomacy, playing risk. I, I, I have to take your supply ports. Either that or I need to stop playing. But at some point, I, I'm going to need to say, um, I need to step on your stuff now. So how do I step on your stuff without you stopping me? What, what would this take do? Away your guns. I take away your guns, and I do it immediately. I follow all the rules of war, and I show you that I'm so much better than you are. You don't really want to go to war anyway, especially not over this stuff. I mean, it's right over here. You don't care about this stuff. So we're going to slam you, and we're going to show you that we can even hit your territory itself. We can take out your stuff. How about you decide that you're going to have a non-aggression pact with us? We take your stuff, and then we stop there. You just stay in your mainland, stay in North America, which is what you want to do anyway. So let us do this. The plan was devised by Harvard-educated Admiral Yamamoto. He's like, I know America. I spent time in America. Trust me. If we do this right, we'll end the war the moment it begins. Go to war with them. We'll crunch them. And they'll say, we can't fight back. We have no navy. We don't want to fight back. They're better at this than we are. They will stop. They don't want to go to war. And they'll just say, boy, you do war better than we do, and we didn't want to go to war in the first place. It'll work if we do this right. Unfortunately, actually, yeah. There, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, that would have worked. It really probably would have worked because we really didn't want to go to war. Most politicians were preaching, we're not going to go to war. We don't want to go to war. I promise we won't go to war. Your, son, your dad died. You, as a young man, were injured in a foreign war. We want nothing to do with all those foreign wars. It at least had a chance of working. But the Japanese government decided that there was something missing from Yamamoto's plan, and they can fix it. They can do it better if they're just sneakier. Can we just be sneakier? That's what's missing here. That's what's missing. So they said, all right. For years, people thought, oh, this was a, this was a hiccup. You go, no. Sounds like the Japanese government did it this way on purpose. Out from under Yamamoto, they said, we're going to make sure that the declaration of war comes right after we bomb Pearl Harbor, instead of right before. Because this way, they have absolutely no expectation of it. And we just come out of nowhere. Just come out of nowhere. That'll work. That'll work. That'll be great. I mean, we got some, we intercepted some communiques that something was going on. We didn't know exactly what. We even got some radar blips where we're like, what is that? What's coming? But since they didn't actually declare war, we're like, this is weird, but what do we do? 
to Sunday morning? What do you do? 7.48 a.m. Sunday morning, December 7th, Japanese attack Pearl Harbor without any official warning. And Yamamoto says, what did you just do? No, 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 no. What did you just do? Killing or wounding more than 4,000 servicemen, 100 civilians, disabling 350 aircraft, sinking or damaging 19 ships. Yeah. Did you, ever, did you ever talk about it? So you can understand why why Americans didn't like the Huns. We didn't like the, the we didn't like the the uh, whatever different racial things you want to say. We didn't like the uh, the the Italians. We didn't like the Germans. Anybody that we're fighting against over there, we didn't much care for. But Americans hated the Japs. You know, for for this this this, this absolute racial antipathy that that people start feeling because they're like, not only did you give us a black eye, but you cheated. There's rules to this. There have to be rules to war. If there's not rules to war, it's just a big gang fight, and it gets really weird, really ugly, really fast. There are rules to this. Five battleships, two cruisers ended up being salvaged, which is important. But even more important, they didn't even touch the U.S. aircraft carriers. They weren't there. Which was crucially important because it meant that we had to shift all of our strategy to use aircraft carriers instead of the battleships and, th and, and cruisers and stuff that we had originally intended to do. Which arguably is the reason we won the Pacific War. Because of our use of aircraft carriers. If you look at like Midway, you look at Coral Sea and stuff, you go, well, pretty much aircraft carrier stuff. So all this did was force us to do war better than we had intended to do it. And galvanize the American public. This is now we're to what Donald was talking about. You're like, wait, this is sinking the Maine. This is destroying the Alamo. This is this is exactly what gets Americans motivated. Instead of being exactly the sort of thing that might make us say, you know what, this is a war we didn't even want to be involved in the first place. We're done. The span of like an hour worth of, 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 of making sure the translation was there changed the war from yeah I. Fine, let's just make peace with Japan and focus on the European war, or whatever. Became a no, no, what Churchill said, we will fight to the last man. I, under no circumstances are we losing to these people. It's like, well, the United States is at war with Japan and not as crippled as Yamamoto had originally intended. And Great Britain eventually immediately declares war on Japan in defense of the United States, leading Germany to declare war against America by default. So you go, yep, suddenly we're in World War II. Yamamoto is credited, now whether he actually said it or not is some question, but he, I'm sure given some of the other things he said, he thought this. He's quoted as saying in his diary, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Instead of making the giant want to go crawl into his hole, we made the giant want to do absolutely nothing other than take us completely down. This is exactly what I didn't want to do. All this had a very interesting effect on American churches. Church attendance had spiked during the beginning of the Great Depression. When everything started going down, downhill, people started flocking to the church to try to well, get what? Okay. 
the depression wore up and they start fizzling in their involvement. Why? God wasn't Yeah, what kind of God, what kind of church were they looking for? Were they looking for, ultimately, were they looking for comfort through the storm? The storm kept going. What were they looking for? Or at the very least, yes. But let's let's give them a, a little bit of benefit of the doubt. God makes the storm go away. If it were just, I, I, you're right. I think it was comfort. But if it were just comfort, as the as the depression wore on, they would have stayed. It's like no, no, no. They wanted the storm gone. They wanted some sort of quick fix, quick remedy, make it stop. What can we learn about that today? Something bad happens. We get this church attendance spike, and we go, praise God, people are coming to the Lord. Maybe. People did that after 9-11, right? Did it stick? Just a matter of weeks. Yeah, and it was actually lower than it was prior to 9-11. So we need to stop and go, wait, what kind of God are people actually looking for? How do we address that when they come through our doors? At the beginning of World War II, people started attending church again. Wasn't this huge spike, but little by little. Again, what kind of church are they looking for? What kind of God are they looking for? Well, this, even as the even as the war wore on, people still kept going to church. You know, this is more weathered through the storm. People going, I want to be there. I want I want God to 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 work with me and help me with this. But then church attendance didn't really spike again until post World War II. Everybody's making money. Everybody's the economy is great. Everybody's back to the way it was. Women are back in their place like they should be. And women go, actually, I'd rather not. Women are back in their place as they should be. Very consciously saying, everything's good. Everything's good. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's good. Even if we have to say that artificially, everything's good. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's good. What kind of church of God were they looking for then? There's a growth when things are hard. There's a spike when things get really nice and affluent. something to be said for that, especially since the keeping up with the Joneses concept emerged in this in the fifties. Absolutely. And gratitude that God saved us from all that. Gratitude that, that we live in a free country. Gratitude we're not Soviets. Those godless commies. We're not godless. Why we go to church? So there's sociological reasons. We're not the commies. We go to church. There's there's relational reasons, keeping up with the Joneses, there's spiritual reasons. We're genuinely appreciative to God. Was it perception too? Was it perceived that before the war everyone went to church, thus afterward they want to get back to how it was? Actually, um, no. I read a bunch of articles, interestingly, from the 20s and then the, the late 30s, where they were bemoaning, saying, if this trend keeps up, by the time we get to 1950, there won't be anybody in church. So, I mean, some of the stuff that you'll read today you know, on the internet... They didn't have back then. But some of the articles that there were saying church is dying in the United States. Yeah. Did it have anything to do with the Cold War? Yes, in what way? Well, before, you know, you're, you are fighting, but you uh, it's in your hands. Mm -hmm. You know, you can shoot, you can do it. I see where you're going. Cold War, 
it's out of my hands. Somebody can pull the trigger and everybody's so you're talking, instead of just, boy, this is going to be a nasty war, this is, if there is a World War III, you're talking, well, I mean, look at the horror movies. Again, big fan of looking at horror movies to figure out what people are really thinking. 1930s, all the horror movies are weird European monsters, right? Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, werewolf coming from Europe, all these classic old European monsters with weird accents. 1950s, all of a sudden it's like nuclear monsters and um, Godzilla and, and, or on the flip side, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. They may look like you, your neighbors, but the, it, down, down deep they may actually become uh, aliens. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going back to another thing in the church, but... I've heard a lot of veterans came back and were interested in missions yeah. because they had seen the need all around the world, mm -hmm. and then there was mission spikes. A lot yep. of people went, wanted to, you know, go for the sake of Christ, and so that might have bolstered Absolutely. the churches and enthusiasm. In fact, in a minute we'll talk about the the rise of evangelicalism, which also gave rise to a mission spirit. So there's a whole lot of factors that feed into all that kind of stuff. Well, there can only be one. <laughs> anyway, then church attendance has steadily declined since the 60s. There's been bumps here and there. But again, how, how would you say our church today is living in the shadow of the Christians who went to church for these reasons, the Christians who went to church for these reasons, the Christians and their children who stopped going to church for these reasons. How's that affect today, or does it? A lot of mindsets in the 60s, where the declines came, we still live under those same philosophical um, thoughts. The kids who were leaving the church in droves in the 60s are now the gray-haired guys who are leading the country, right? The elder statesmen. So yeah, this still affects things, and their children and grandchildren are, are the new upcoming people. But here's the thing, um, and I'm not even trying to skewer anything in particular, but for those who say, you know, this is the way we should do church, the way we did it over in the 20s, or boy, this worked really well in the 50s, so that's what we should do. Because it worked really well. We got a lot of people who go, for some very good reasons. And for some very unhealthy reasons. But that was like a generation and a half ago. And we can't just do things the way they did it back then. Sure we can. Let's put a lot of money and effort into, let's put nine years and three billion francs into doing this. Because it worked in the 1950s. And I totally feel strongly that it will work now. I feel strongly that the Maginot line will work, therefore I'm sure it will. I feel strongly that this will work, therefore it will. Now learn from why did what worked and why did it work in that culture, but you need to translate the why into the modern culture, not the what. Again, learn from history. Stop and say, wait a minute. Just because this worked then, well, by definition, if it worked so well, why did it stop working? Whatever we did here in the 50s led to whatever we did in the 60s and 70s. Which doesn't mean it's all wrong. 
But I'm forever telling people in their marriage counseling, forever telling people, they say, boy, I wish we could get back to the way things were. Like, but the way things were in your marriage, though it might have felt better, is what got you to this point in your marriage. So we don't want to get back to the way things were. We want to get to a healthy point, which may or may not look like it was before. We just need to stop and think. We need to learn a little bit from history and say, wait, I may not just assume anything. Let me make sure I understand what it is I'm standing against or standing for. Pastors started leading the congregation more and more in prayer services, praying about, uh, about praying for the safe return of the soldiers, praying against the German and the Japanese. Let's, let's be nationalistic. Increasingly, sermons got very nationalistic. Tons of people started flying that Christian flag in their, in, in their, in their churches. Which means the gulf between the fundamentalists and the liberals is growing. Because liberal churches are pushing a specifically liberal agenda. Fundamentalist churches are pushing a particularly fundamentalist agenda. How would you summarize the difference between these two at this point in history? Between the fundamentalists and the liberals? Do you remember? Okay. Fundamentalists tend to be very anti-modernity. The liberals are being very pro-modernity. Whatever's new, whatever's cool, whatever is questioning what's come before, that's what we need to do. What's, what comes, what's come before is what has gotten us to this point. Therefore, we need to check that and do all sorts of new things. The, the, the fundamentalists are like, no, no, that's all bad. Anything like that is bad. Higher education is getting bad. We used to be the ones who created the universities, we conservative Christians. Now, you guys are being the ones who are in the universities. Princeton is falling to this modernity controversy. So, universities are bad. We're going to go back. Anybody going to seminary, that's bad. We're going to stand against all that kind of stuff. It's in this context that the National Association for Evangelicals begins in 1942. We know radio preachers, remember we talked about this before, radio preachers popping up all over the place. But even the most conservative ones are not having any kind of accountability. They're not connected to anybody else. You can reach millions of people without having any kind of accountability. How dangerous is that? Certainly we won't allow that to continue. 1929, Pentecostal preacher J. Elwin Wright, no relation, um, created the New England Fellowship. He's like, I'm devoutly Pentecostal, but I'm going to create a fellowship that is not based on Pentecostalism. This is based on, can we all come together, all kinds of conservatives from all kinds of backgrounds, and just have one consistent activist voice? Can we, can we come together like like the fundamentalists aren't doing. Say a lot of the stuff that they are and some of the stuff that they're not. Can we do this positively? Can we, can we have a, a positive, constructive tone? Because all the fundamentalists are doing is trying to rip everything down. Can we redeem some of this stuff? Because remember, the fundamentalists are primarily focused on combating evil. Like, yes, we're modernity bad. No, we're very judgmental. This new group says, why don't we, instead of focusing solely on what everybody else is doing wrong, why don't we focus on what Christ does right? How about, how about we focus on the good things in the Bible? I'm not saying we avoid ever talking about bad things, but how about we, we just emphasize trying to make a positive difference in the world? Yeah? Interesting, it sounds a lot like the German church. It does, doesn't it? Except there's one fundamental difference here. These guys are absolutely stapling themselves to Scripture. Where the Germans are actually saying, can we chuck the Old Testament? Can we reframe Jesus? And you go, no. At the beginning, especially of the evangelical movement, they're like, 
Absolutely. We're going to do everything we can to say everything we're doing is founded on Scripture. In fact, I'm going to say, I'm going to summarize that evangelicalism, at least at this beginning, was, was emphasizing five points. The importance of having a conversion experience. You have a relationship with God. You move from death to life. Activism. If you are moving from death to life, you've got to live like it. You can't just sit in a pew and be a Christian. You actually have to be involved in the world to make a difference. You have to be telling people. You have to be engaged. We're going to absolutely, unequivocally, nail ourselves to Scripture. As much as we possibly can, that is our ultimate authority. We're going to make the cross the central focus of everything. Why did Jesus die on the cross? What does that mean? How do we, in every sermon we ever give, can we talk about this? The whole point of this was to redeem mankind, not just hate it. How do, we, how do we fix it? We can't, but God can. And scholasticism. We are going to redeem universities. We're going to create new universities. We're going to do everything we can to do as, the best research, the best study that we can possibly do to make sure we get back to what we genuinely believe the original intent of the writings are. Now, people do this better and worse? Sure. But the basic idea to begin with was this. Stuff that maybe the fundamentalists weren't necessarily doing and positive Christianity in Germany definitely wasn't doing. Do you understand why we call ourselves an evangelical church given these kinds of foci? Even though in some ways evangelicalism has shifted a little bit. The movement caught on, started to spread 1941. First national conference for united action among evangelicals was convened in St. Louis. Think about that. The whole point of the, the, the first conference was action. Let's do social action. This is why we're getting together, is to actually make a difference in things. They saw fundamentalism as an embarrassment instead of a badge of honor. That was, according to Kenneth Conser, who was part of the, that original evangelical movement, ended up uh, being the founding dean of where I went to seminary, Trinity. But he's like, no, unfortunately, fundamentalists, that word has become something very negative. Most people see it as a negative thing. So instead, evangelicals begin to distance themselves from the fundamentalists, and the fundamentalists begin to distance themselves from the evangelicals. Both sides say, you're really not us. The term fundamentalist had pretty much become synonymous with closed-minded Bible thumper. When you think of the term fundamentalist, and how that's usually used, if you've heard it used, it tends to be the, the, the knee-jerk reaction. Except for, to everybody except the fundamentalists. Fundamentalists are like, no, 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 we're the right ones. And evangelical became synonymous with open-minded conservative Christian. To everybody except the fundamentalists. Who sat there and said, no, you evangelicals are liberal. I mean, you accept other conservatives who don't agree with you on points. How can you as an Arminian, or you as a Calvinist, sit there with a Calvinist or Arminian? How can you believe this, but how can you be a, a Pentecostal and still have fellowship with a, a, a cessationist? And, and the evangelicals were saying, because we're not rounding off any edges. We're agreeing that we disagree on these points. But we're focusing on the part we do agree on. This is what we agree on, and we're focusing on that to be positive together. And the fundamentalist said, you're overly concerned with being seen as scholarly, being seen as intellectual, being seen as well-studied. Why universities are a write-off. You need to stop caring about that kind of stuff. The evangelicals like, no, 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 no. God gave us minds for a reason. Now, I'm painting in broad strokes, but these are the basic differences between evangelicals and fundamentalists when the evangelical movement started, which is an interesting point when you think about it nowadays. 
They began with this mission to, quote, honor God by connecting and representing evangelical Christians. That's what we're doing. We're going to be representing God. We're going to honor God. We're going to represent one another. We're going to do social action. And to do so within the existing education and political structures of the day. We want to use universities. We want to use politics. We want to get evangelicals involved in politics. We want to be positive and proactive. The whole idea was to show that conservative Christians weren't anti-science or anti-intellectual, but were legitimately smart people and legitimately scholarly people. And that decent, scholarly, scientific inquiry, if you use logic, you're going to tend to be conservative Christian. I mean, I teach logic at, 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 uh, at a state, or not a state, but a, a secular school. And it's, from my perspective, an amazing amount of what we read in Scripture is totally logical. And even as I'm dealing with people, I don't tell them that we're doing is unpacking Christianity. But we'll talk about ethics. We'll talk about, about conflict management. We'll talk about different things. And even secular people who have never even thought about this from a Christian perspective will say, logically, yes, it makes sense that, and will come up with logical conclusions that mirror Scripture. So, yeah, a good evangelical start off saying, no, we, we're pro-conservative, not anti-liberal. We're pro-biblicality, not anti-secular. We're trying to help people see that this makes sense. What's interesting is, even when I was in seminary in the 1990s, uh, my wife's uncle, who's a, a liberal scholar, argued that evangelicals are all anti-scholarship. They're all against free thought. He's like, oh, evangelicals. We need good scholars, not evangelicals. And I kept citing evangelical scholars going, actually, I think you're thinking more fundamentalists who said, I'm not writing fundamentalist commentaries in the Bible. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. The evangelicals actually came up with a lot of good stuff. The evangelicals starting seminaries. The evangelicals starting, you know, writing really good commentaries. The evangelicals doing a lot of good biblical scholarship. He's like, nope, 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 never, never could see it. He kept connecting, as a lot of liberals did, evangelicals in his mind with fundamentalists. They're all part of this anti-intellectual, biblically conservative, I open my Bible and I shut my brain. It's like, well, but that's not what they were trying to do. So why is it? Why did this happen? Why, why do you think that liberals tended to start thinking of evangelicals in those terms? Okay. Okay. It's easy to associate with what I've already got associated in my mind. What else? Yeah. Um, everybody likes to stereotype and put our Christians in Everybody does. Everybody. <laughs> we do. Everybody does. It's a human thing. We all like to put things in logical boxes. This is that logical box. Anything else? could make an argument, because everything I've just described about evangelicals, is that the way you think evangelicals are perceived nowadays? Is that the way evangelicals always present themselves nowadays? That was the ideal it started with. We're not anti-world, we're pro-God. Which plays itself out as being against, you know, wrong-headed things. And abortion, and homosexuality, and teen pregnancy, and None of which, I, 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 the gun control thing has, I mean, it's a whole yeah. other thing. But, um, but I mean, to say abortion is bad, to say teenage pregnancy is something that we need to work on, to say um, 
drug abuse and alcohol abuse, and to say these are things that we need to work on. No, absolutely. Social activism for Jesus, absolutely. And yet, one could argue that the evangelical movement kind of started just being more anti-things than it became pro-things a lot of stuff. Because it's really easy. There's a reason why the fundamentalists kind of got there. And there's a reason why the evangelicals kind of got there. We, we live in a, in a a world that is antithetical to Christianity, and so sometimes we can start thinking of ourselves as battling against it, first and foremost, instead of battling for rightness, first and foremost. The uh, March for Life mm -hmm. happened in Washington the other day. They were reporting on that as the anti-abortion rights activists. Antithetical, <laughs> exactly. I, I even ran into this with the teachers at the Evangelical Covenant Church when they were trying to teach me what it meant to be Evangelical Covenant and use the term Evangelical as a pejorative, saying, I mean, Evangelical, we're probably not an Evangelical Church because Evangelicals are all very negative and very um, conservative, and we like to be a lot more open-minded than that. Now, granted, when I informed other people in the Evangelical Church about that, they're like, Oh, no, they didn't say that. Really, 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 please tell me they didn't say that. But the fact remains that to a lot of people, the word evangelical has become negative. It's become associated with tearing things down. And there is a time for tearing things down. But it's just interesting that, that that's exactly the sort of mindset that the movement started off by not wanting to be. Today, would you argue that evangelicals are seen as standing for a positive scholarly Christianity or as taking a negative stand against secular education, secular moral, secular culture. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: if you if you are an anti-intellectual, um, anti-morality, like I don't care about reason at all kind of person, if someone's being reasonable at all, or someone thinks something I don't think is right, then they're obviously anti-me and hate me. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter how they actually present themselves. Right. And so, this, this, this is, I was going to say a two-edged sword. That's not even fair. It's a multiple-edged sword. Because you sit there and you go, well, there's obviously going to be evangelicals who say, no, no, no. We stand against these things, but because we stand for this, but we're having to, to fight the good fight, there are going to be some that do exactly what the stereotypes are. There are going to be some people that no matter what evangelicals do, sit there and say, we hate you. If you are not, if you did not specifically vote for Hillary Clinton, I am unfriending you on Facebook because you are obviously a woman-hating fascist. You go, wait, you're the intellectual? You say that and you declare yourself to be the intellectual? That's a horribly broad statement to make. Well, I think the problem is when postmodernism came in and then there's no absolute truth. Yep. That's the rub now, because Christians say there is. There is an authority, and the others say there is no. All stories are equal. How can you say your story? And so that's the crux right now. Which is interesting, because when you look at people like Voltaire or whomever uh, back in the day that, that were standing against Christianity, they said, we're the logical ones. You Christians are these faithful ones. And we're the logic people. We're the intellectuals. Today, when Christians say, well, let's discuss logic. Let's use basic logic to discuss things, a postmodern world says, no, 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 we're post-logic. There is no absolute truth. 
the fact that you so parochially think there is an absolute capital T truth means you're not the intellectual. We're the intellectuals because we're not so logical. You just go, you keep changing the battlefield! Which goes back to stop and think. Marriage is no lie. Were you going to say something? Does a lot of this go back to Paul Wall's moral majority stuff, too? Oh, that's coming up later. No, I'm not even going to get into that one yet. But yes. Um, in general, during World War II, fundamentalism dug in, isolated themselves, while the evangelicals tried to reach out, reach across denominations. Billy Graham even reached up to Catholics, which messed with a lot of people. I mean, a lot of fundamentalists are like, you actually say you want to interact with Catholics? Not just save their souls, but like interact with them as if they were Christians? Clearly. Messed up, right? Then again, he annoyed a lot of evangelicals in 1997 when he said that, quote, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world, unquote, people, quote, may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something that they don't have. And they turn to the only light that they have. And I think that they're saved and that they're going to be with us in heaven. So help me out. Is that universalism? You can be saved, but not in the name of Jesus. Just saved, you know, because Jesus exists. You don't have to know Jesus, right? Now here's where it's difficult to be an evangelical. Because you go, I'm very positive. I'm very positive. I'm very positive. That makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> I want to be positive. I want to say, I want to say, maybe that's out of context. Like, no, I watched the whole thing. That's not really out of context. This is the Catholic Church's stance, by the way. The official Catholic Church's stance right now is that everybody is saved through Christ's blood, even if they don't necessarily know Christ. If they are trying to be a good Buddhist, or trying to be a good whatever they are, technically they are possible being saved because of Christ's work on the cross, even if they don't call on the name of Jesus. Because Christ offered the opportunity for them to be saved. So, the Pope? The last couple of Popes, actually. So, Does that apply to Protestants? Because that sounds very different than what I've heard sitting in Mass. Oh, every priest does it his own way. That's, but, but, here's, but here's the thing. Um, whether you say Okay, well, we've lost Billy Graham. He's a crazy person. He's gone off to Satan now, as some evangelicals did. Or whether you say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, because here's what he really meant, as some evangelicals did. Or if you find yourself saying, oh, Billy, you really got to watch your words carefully, because I really, I'm hoping that's not exactly what you meant. Or maybe because you're talking to Robert Schuller on the Robert Schuller hour in front of millions, you just kind of felt, corn. I don't know, but... I don't agree. I'm sorry. As I read my Bible, I'm pretty sure that if you don't call on the name of Jesus, you can't count on being saved. So everything you just said there is dangerous and undermines everything you've ever preached. Are you lost to Satan? I don't, know, I don't think so. So do I agree with you? No, I'm pretty sure I don't. But that's an open-minded conservativeness that is kind of hard to hold on to. It's easy to slip into everything's fine, or fundamentalist, you're scum. Really kind of hard. What do you think? How should you respond to somebody who says that? How should you respond to the major 
evangelist in the Protestant world who says this on national television. Okay, so how do you respond when you hear people say stuff like this? I think, hopefully, because I, I wholeheartedly agree with that one, I think that's the way we should respond. How do we respond when we run into fellow Christians who say stuff that we say, I'm pretty sure that's not what Scripture says? Do we quietly just sit in the corner and go, say anything because I don't want to be judgmental. Everything's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Or do we say, you're a horrible person. You're rotten. Get out of my church. I don't want, or I'll get out of your church. <laughs> With a snotty attitude as Christ intended. Oh, Facebook is the modern pointy hood. Isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry, but it is. It is. Facebook is the great anonymous nader. You can say anything that you want to say if you're not, if somebody's not looking you in the face. This is. This is. I mean, Facebook is also a lot of good things. But being able to tweet things, being able to Facebook things, being able to say things without having to interact face to face with people. Do people say things on Facebook that they would never say face to face? It's it's the um, it's the uh, interpersonal version of a drone strike. <laughs> <laughs> now again, there are a lot of people that have real problems philosophically with the idea of a drone, which blows me away because I'm like, really? You have no problem with a missile? Missiles are great. Look, there's a camera on the head of the missile, and we watched it go down the chimney and blow up the bad people. Yay! Drone, bad. Amazes me. Like you're just doing, we're doing interpersonal bullets are interpersonal warfare. Unless you insert them manually, you're doing it from a distance. So it's like the whole idea of, of warfare is to be impersonal. Yeah, exactly. And we've lost people. So there's nothing wrong with using Facebook. There's nothing wrong with using tweets. There's nothing wrong with using things to, to send out information over distance over to mass numbers of people. I'm not saying that is inherently wrong, but all these things are inherently dangerous for those reasons where you go, the more personal you make it, the easier it is for you to do something destructive and feel nothing about it. Yes? Well, especially since in Scripture, don't get back here with me. In Scripture, are we specifically told if you have a problem with somebody, what are you supposed to do? Write them a note? Because you can sit there and go, well, they didn't have mass media back then. Half the New Testament is, I wrote you a note, right? So, is it, if you have a problem, if I have a problem with Michael, I should write him a note. Ideally, if you have a problem with somebody, what do you do? Talk to him face to face. You go talk with them. You sit down with them. You look them in the eyes and you say, here's my concern. You give them the opportunity to interact back. You read their nonverbals. You show that you care. You invest yourself. You make yourself vulnerable because you're trying to correct somebody else. You should never do that. 
comfortably. The Pharisees comfortably corrected people. How well did that work out? I'm not going to say that they're evil people, but they got so comfortable with sitting there just going, boom, let me just toss out correction from the rafters, that that's all that they did. It's like, interact with people, engage with them. It's hard. Which is why you should think before you do it. And think while you're doing it. And care about the person while you're doing it. So all of this is to say, let's go back to what we started off with this. Imagine a mind. How do you do what you do as a church? Do you do the thing that seems expedient as you're sitting there in a planning room? Or do you say, well, I need to know who I'm dealing with. Otherwise, everything I'm doing here, not only, not only does it not work, it can actually lead to worse things. Because we did this national line, they invaded Belgium and the Netherlands. They might have done that anyway, but it's like, they did horrible stuff. We endangered everybody else because we didn't know what we were doing. And we were confident that we knew what we were doing. So we need to stop and say, wait, why do we do what we do? Why are we engaging the way we're engaging? Why are we disengaging the way we're disengaging? Do we deal with conflict the way that we do? Do we deal with non-Christians the way that we do because it's easier that way? We can wrap it in whatever terms we want to wrap it in. Oh, we're being nice. We're trying to spare their feelings. We're, we don't want to come down as being judgmental. We don't want to, we don't want them to think we're fundamentalists. We don't want them to think we're overly strict. We, do we avoid the biblical rationales, the, the biblical models, because we slide into just being negative? Or because we just don't understand who it is we're dealing with, or we want to do what our grandparents did, or we just want to do the easy thing? Or do we say, wait, I need to know what I'm dealing with, and I need to invest there? 1943, Crux on Saha was published. That's where we'll pick it up next week. An Attack on the Catholic Church by H.G. Wells. But in the meantime, I encourage you, stop and think. What can you learn from history? What can we learn from what people have done? Who has gone before us? What can we learn about how we should be living, how we should be treating the world around us? Not giving in to it, not capitulating. Chamberlain did that. Didn't work out so well. Not just saying, oh, we'll do whatever we think works. Maginot did that. Didn't work out so well. Stop and say, wait, I don't want to become them. Even if it works, I lose me in the process, like Churchill. What should I do? How should I live? Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you that you never leave us just to figure this all out on our own. You've given us a whole big, thick book. You've given us your Holy, your Holy Spirit in us. You give us daily leading. You. You show us the way so many times in so many different ways. Thank you that you don't just leave it to us to figure out. I pray that you give us good ears to hear you, good ears to listen well. Help us to desire to listen well and to live out your truth. Help us to be pro-God in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.